Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, readers from far and near. Bibliophiles is on tap once again. I'm Adam Andrews from Center for Lit. Glad to be your fearless leader for another episode. And glad, as usual, to be joined by the rest of the Center for Lit crew, including my wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. His wife, Emily. Hello. And my daughter, Megan. Hi. The Center for Lit crew, the the traveling literary Andrewses, are at it once again. Thanks for joining us. We're excited about another episode, particularly excited this time around because we're going to branch out from our normal topic of all things literary, and we're going to branch out into movies just a little bit. The If this episode had a title, it would be Movie Versions of the Great Books. How do you find a good one? How can you tell a good one from a bad one? Let's discuss that topic together. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about it is because we Andrews, as those of you who have grown up in our family know all too well, are inveterate movie watchers. Nothing we like better, with the possible exception of reading a great book, than sitting down in the basement watching a movie version of it. Mm-hmm. And we get questions a lot from our students and from their parents about the relative merits of the movie version of a great classic. In fact, I will, <laughs> I will confess to having this question come from the parents of kids in our online classes every once in a while. Uh, my son didn't actually read this title in preparation for the <laughs> class, but he did watch the movie. Is, <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> Does yeah. that count? And, uh, you know, we, we can obviously offer a pat answer to that question, but, but I here's thought... Here's a pat answer. No. no. <laughs> here's a pat answer for you. <laughs> not really. No, it no. does not. <laughs> but I think uh, it does lead to an interesting conversation. It is fun. But, well, and, and, you know, we'll talk about this in some detail as we go along, but there are some broad areas of similarity between literary art and cinematic art. And the areas of similarity are so broad that I think it's perfectly appropriate for a Center for Lit crew, for example, to talk about the movie versions of the classics. We can use a lot of the same categories of analysis, obviously, if we're teaching those things in a classroom. We can use a lot of the same terminologies, uh, plot and climax and rising action and those sorts of things, when we're just discussing uh, movies in general, to say nothing of movies based on great works of literature. So, in other words, it's a, I think it's a fair topic for conversation. And I am really excited to hear what you guys have to say about this question. What makes a great movie version of a classic book? And I'd love to hear uh, as we go along, what some of your favorite examples of the genre are. And maybe even if as we get into it a little bit, what are your worst examples of the genre? Uh, you know, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that might even be a longer list than the first one. It's going to be a roast. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, it doesn't necessarily have to be a roast, but I just thought that, that our listeners would be interested in this topic and could maybe take a few good ideas uh, back home to their families as they spend their evenings in the basement watching movies too. So anyway, with that as by way of introduction, let me just throw the, the floor open and, uh, and, and maybe ask this question to start with. 
in your opinion, guys, what makes a what makes a good version of a great work of literature on the silver screen? What's the, the what's the detail that you look for above all else when you're trying to find a good one? Well, I feel like first of all, it's really important to recognize that they're two separate things. Uh, there's the book, which is um, its own. That's the origination of the art, but then there's also the movie. And the movie is not the book. It's not meant to be the book. And so it's unfair to judge the movie solely based on the book. Like it was, it missed these important parts or, um, you know, like it, it was too broad in this area. I think that's an unfair judgment for a movie right. version of a book. Right. Yeah. What you're going to be <clears throat> encountering when you sit down to watch a film version of a novel is um, a particular reading of the novel, the director sitting down and giving his take or his spin on the book itself. <clears throat> so comparing them line by line isn't really uh, fair to either either the novel or the film. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, right. I think of like the two versions of Pride and Prejudice. There's the six-hour version that basically hits every single moment in the book. Mostly word for word. <laughs> and then the, there's the two-hour version, which is beautiful. And a lot of people don't like it because it doesn't hit all the parts in the book, but it's its own thing. It's, he, the director is trying to hit certain moods of the book and... Um, he creates a really pleasing visual element, and it's just a different thing. Right, and this is not to say, however, that a director can't do absolute violence to a story. I've seen that well, happen as well. that's absolutely true. But I guess I would just want to start out by saying they're two separate things, and they deserve to be judged as two separate things. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So the author of a great work of literature and the director of a modern movie are artists in their own right doing slightly different things despite the fact that they may be using the same source material. Fair enough? Sure. And I really liked what Ian said about, in some ways, the director is being a reader of the book and giving us his own interpretation. Ah. I have a question, then, about the Pride and Prejudice um, debate that goes on between the six-hour version and the two-hour version. Um, You said you liked both of them. What's the determining factor? There you have two directors reading the same story and offering you slightly different interpretations. Um, and you liked them both. I wonder what you would say about that. What, what, what did they both capture that was most important? Well, if I'm being perfectly honest, it's been a really long time since I've seen the six hour version. Cause ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> I saw it one yeah. and I was done, but I'm going to probably get a lot of flack for that. But, um, I don't know. I mean, I do think that different directors can capitalize on different, thematic ideas because the work of literature is so rich um it's very possible that they can have different emphases and neither of them be doing violence to the book right okay that's that's as much as saying um in the field of literary analysis there are different readings of different stories and as long as they're supportable with the text they're valid which is not to say that that all of them are as good they're all equally the good. They're not all equally as good. You know, there's a, a degree uh, we can decide which one we like best, which one we think is truest to the author's spirit and his language, his syntax and purposes. Um, and that's right. what literary analysis is all really about. You know, without the author's right. express <laughs> explanation of the story before us, we have only his work of art. And in the field of literary analysis, what we do is we bring to bear as readers 
um, our own understanding of his language and his use of the words and all those things in, in an attempt to understand him. I get you. I think you're right. Basically saying, yeah, this think, is what I think that this author was trying to say. I think we should avoid, however, and this is just, <clears throat> this may be peripheral to the conversation, but I think we should avoid setting up the, well, the standard, I guess, the sort of cliche distinction between books and movies, which is that the book is better and and you can watch the movie if you're a heathen, but really the book is better. Well, <laughs> I don't think the, anybody's saying that. Because the truth is, what's really true is that a director is also an artist in a way that a literary critic maybe isn't. And there there is also such a thing as films taken from novels where the novel was actually poorly executed and poorly written and the film is way better. Right. Um, one of the ones that jumps to mind, actually, and I may get flack for this also, is The Last of the Mohicans. Mm-hmm. If you read The Last of the Mohicans, I mean, undisputedly a classic, but frankly, kind of ham-fistedly written. I mean, there are strings of, you know, 12, 13, 15 adjectives in a row, and the guy's writing style is pretty self-indulgent, frankly. And then you've watched the film, and because he wrote such a great story to begin with, the film is just replete with beautiful thematic content and is really well acted. And I think that's an example of a director being an artist alongside of the of the novelist and helping him tell a story in an effective way, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, add, I would basically add to that um, the movie Babette's Feast. I, I felt the same way oh, about that yeah. one, um, directed by Gabriel Axel. Um, originally based on a story by Isaac Dennison. And um, I, it's just a tiny little novella. And I've read it. And it's, you know, there are, there are hints of grace in the original story. Um, but when you watch the movie, the, the director and the, the writer of the screenplay are the same. Gabriel Axel also wrote the screenplay. And the way that he retells it really does shine the spotlight on that, um, what was really very um, understated in the original text. Yeah. You know, his, his reading of the story highlights the element of grace. And I, I thought it was much more beautiful than mm. the original text was. Would you say something similar, Ian, about the the movie version of Last of the, Last of the Mohicans? I'm assuming you're referring to the one that came out in the 90s starring Daniel Day-Lewis, a movie version of James yeah. Fenimore Cooper's classic. Yeah, if you can get Daniel Day-Lewis to be in your film, it's probably going to turn out okay. Um, yeah, that's the one I'm referring to. I, th- I, th- I thought very much the same thing. Um, there's, a, I guess maybe one of the things to note is that there's a difference between being an excellent stylist and telling a great story. And sometimes the director ends up being a better stylist than the novelist. <laughs> and, and maybe it's rare. Maybe that's a rare occasion. But I think the one that mom was mentioning, Bobette's Feast and, and Last of the Mohicans, might be examples of that phenomenon. Emily, I think you had a comment you wanted to throw in here a minute ago. Oh, I mean, now it's a little off topic. but So we just watched The Little Prince that came out on Netflix. Ah, yes. Um, not too long ago. And... <laughs> Ian is getting ready to do battle. And I, I mean, sure, like we can do some battle on it, but I guess what I wanted to say is I went into it expecting, like I kind of broke all of my own rules about this sort of thing. I was expecting um, just a simple retelling of the book. Um, I thought it was going to be exactly the same, and I was super excited because I really loved that book. And then got into the movie, and it was a completely different thing. The director wasn't trying to just retell the story. He was telling the story of someone reacting to the story of Little Prince. Mm. Um, and, and I guess that that's a really good example of what we're talking about. The artist 
director doing his own thing with the work of literature instead of it being the work of literature itself. Yeah, I, wonder I, if, I agree. It's kind of responsive art. Yeah, I was going to say that. I wonder if the the idea that we are always on about at Center for Lit about the great conversation applies to this discussion in part as well. A director reads a story and based on his reading of the story says, oh, one of those thematic ideas <laughs> evokes in me a response and my movie is a a salvo of my own in this great conversation that the author of the book has begun. My only, my only beef with that really is when they go ahead and co-op the, the name. Title. <laughs> yeah, the title. So as a, as a viewer, you go because you believe that you're going to be getting uh, a reading of that particular book, an understanding of that particular book presented by the director. And then you show up and it's not that story at all. They've like, you know, copped the title and done something other. Well, rename the thing. Write your own darn movie. You know. Are, are you ta- are you talking about the Little Prince though? Because I will go to. No, bat no, with you. I'm not. I actually really enjoyed okay. that one. But like, for example, the Tale of Despero. Have you guys read that? It's beautiful. Kate de Camelo. Great um, Yeah, just a little a work of fiction. Beautiful, beautiful themes shot through it. And I went to, to see the movie, and you know, it was an adventure story. And I thought, seriously. This bears very little resemblance to the original story. This is a different story that this director and screenplay writer are meaning to tell. What gives? You know. When you say a different story in that connection, do you mean that they actually uh, reordered plot events and redefined characters and and did uh, did violence to the structural yes, elements of the story did, that existed in the printed version to the, to the printed versions um objects yes right maybe they um you know in a lot of movies they'll keep the same characters but they'll tell a different story with those characters or they'll take one tiny element of the original story and they'll make a whole movie out of that element neglecting the rest of the book altogether i got an idea about that though because because we all acknowledge that if you read a if you read a work of literature closely and you talk about those five structural elements that we always look for, the the setting and the characters, the conflict and the plot, and then the overarching themes. We all acknowledge that some authors do a better job at some of those structural elements than others. Some authors are masters of characterization, but you know their plots can be a little pedantic or plodding. Or some authors really Charles uh, Dickens develop. No, <laughs> not Charles Dickens. I will I will fight you for that. <laughs> But some authors, some authors really create a wonderful setting, but they their characters are some sometimes flat. And I wonder if one of the impulses behind a, a movie director uh, putting out a, a a movie version of a story is to say, "Wow, this story had great characters. Didn't like the plot very much, but I'm going to use those characters and then help him along a little bit with plot elements because I'm better at that sort of thing than he was." Oh my goodness, that's just so presumptuous, though. Right? Well, I, no, that's no, no, a good question. Unless it's responsive art and, and they're calling it so, you know, but to actually... Nope, I think you're wrong because of this. Listen to this. I just had this thought. <laughs> think about the story of Faust, right? There's a version by Goethe and there's a version by Marlowe. The same thing with the Fairy Queen, right? There's one by Spencer and there's someone else. I forget who it is, but, but different authors have undertaken telling the same story, but they're different. Isn't it not mm-hmm. that? Well, I don't know what to say about that because you're talking pre- predominantly about folklore, right? No, they're two different. I mean, they're stories, right? It's there's the story of Faust told by Marlowe, and there's a the story of Faust told by Goethe, and they're different stories using the same characters. And at this mm-hmm. point, they're folklore, but they weren't necessarily when they were told the first time around. Well, that's a good point. I wonder if that's <laughs> if that's part of the 
because we started with this idea from Emily that a a movie and a work of literature are two different art forms, even though they have these broad areas of agreement in terms of structure and form, they really are two different art forms. And I was just going to actually add the other idea is that they're, they're different art forms in the fact that one of them is always longer and more detailed than the other. You've all, you've always got the 90 minute limit or the 120 minute limit when you're making a movie. And mm-hmm. so you've got to focus on a single thematic idea or a single character or a single plot element. And hence the difference yeah, between like, those two movies. It's like the difference between a, a sonic and a narrative <laughs> epic. Right. Right. I wasn't going to elaborate. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, but I think that the difference in those two forms actually necessitates, at least on the director's part, a picking and choosing of material to emphasize. And if we add that to the idea that he's giving a reading or a reaction to his experience of the novel, it's going to look different every time, maybe. So what kinds of things should we keep in mind if we're trying to determine whether the movie is actually a good one or not? Because we've said, you know, um, an artistic response is fair game. And at the same time, we've said that we're getting a lot of times when they're trying to actually retell the story, we are getting that author's reading of the original piece um, in question. Right. Right. So what kinds of questions should we keep in our mind as viewers to determine whether or not it's actually good? Well, the, fir- the first thing that I would say is, um, by all means, read the book. I-, I don't think you're qualified to have the conversation about whether the film is a faithful retelling, clearly and obviously, unless you've read the novel to begin with. Mm-hmm. Once you've gone and done that, I think maybe the first question we should ask is how faithful a reader is the director. Um, mm-hmm. And, and once, you've, once you have found the points where he departs from the novel, where he tells a different story, or whether he emphasizes a different theme than you saw in your own reading, then you can begin going down the rabbit hole of, well, was this a fair thing that he did to this story? But the first, the first thing I think we have to do is remember that the director is a reader himself, and via our own reading, find out if he's being honest. Hmm. And- I have a question then. Is there... Is there ever a point where you can depart from that line of reasoning and start asking exactly the same questions of the movie that you would have of the book, but separate from your thoughts of the book altogether? I think, well, I think you have to, because like we were talking about, the two different art forms. So I I would never give an opinion on a film without asking these kinds of questions about it, without coming to an understanding of its themes and its Mm -hmm. ideas. I'm suggesting that um, if the conversation we're setting out to have is, did this big bad director do violence to my favorite story or not. You have to first read them both faithfully and humbly, like we've been talking about reading all along. In other words, when we approach a novel, what we do is we say that it's the author's job here to communicate a point of view, to communicate a worldview maybe to me. And in order to understand it, I have to shut my own mouth and listen first. So what I'm suggesting is we need to do that not just with the film, but also with the novel and vice versa. And once we've gone all the way through that process of asking questions and coming to an understanding of what the author and the director have said, then we could compare those two messages and decide whether we thought the director was being a faithful reader himself of the novel. I just think that's a great idea. And I have an example of it that I want to describe and see what your guys' reaction to uh, this idea. I had an experience recently of reading a story exactly like you said, Ian, and quote unquote, interrogating it, coming down to an understanding of its themes, and then watching a movie version of the story, which did not play nice with a lot of the details of the story, took some liberties. But I had the experience of 
analyzing the themes of that movie version and was able to compare the two and came up with a surprising result. And the story is the story of Noah from Genesis 1 through 11. And the movie is that movie version called Noah starring Russell Crowe and Emma Watson of about, I don't remember, about what, four years yeah, ago? Something years. like that? Yeah. Yeah, four or five years, I think. And, oh, no, it came out when we were seniors. That'd be three. Three years ago. Okay, so I not know, that it long. seniors? I thought we were juniors. Either way. <laughs> the, the movie received um, scathing reviews from the Bible reading community because of the fact, I think, that the director, you know, played fast and loose with a couple of plot details having to do with the nature of God and the, the presence of giant rock people. Or, or something like that. <laughs> Science fiction elements. No one took very kindly. <laughs> right. And and it was a special case, obviously, because the story itself is holy writ, as you say. And so it's up to a higher standard of thou shalt not mess around with the details. <laughs> <laughs> however, however, when I read and I do a little literary analysis of the of the story of Noah. I come up with an underlying overarching theme that I think the author was driving at. And I find in this movie, as different as it was in some of its uh, representations of the story, I find a very similar theme at work, which is, and Missy, you can back me up on this if you agree with this thematic take from the movie. The theme of the movie is mercy triumphs over judgment. Mm -hmm. And that theme in the movie version of this story is underlined and emphasized at every point in the characters and in the plot arrangement of details, in the climactic moments, in the even in the setting. All of the structural elements of the story point at this idea that mercy triumphs over judgment. And I think that's also the story, the, the point of the biblical story of Noah. So I'm in this position of having to say, this book, this movie did. Uh, violence may be a strong word, but this movie got some details some wrong. Details. Changed some stuff Changed around some in service of a reading of the story that I would wholeheartedly agree with. So what do we... Right, and the important point is that it's not claiming to be Holy Scripture itself. No, it's a, it's a piece of art. Yeah. Maybe even a responsive reading by the director. A conversation about yeah, the ideas. Right. The director watches the, or reads this story in the scriptures, and I've heard an interview with the director. This is exactly what he did. He's been reading this story his whole life. And he said, how would I basically give the gist of that, the theme of that story, in sort of my own, in my own idiom? And that's the movie that he came up with. So is that kind of an example of what you're talking about, Ian? Yeah, I think I so. That's a really good one. I was, I was actually just searching. Um, I can't find it, but uh, in college, I actually ended up writing a column about that Noah movie. It was, it was an assignment in one of my classes, and I had to take a position whether I was going to roast it or not. And I think I actually ended up defending it thematically in a similar way to you. Interesting. Do, do, we, do we ding the director? I mean, even if, even if it wasn't Holy Scripture, you know, do we ding the director for playing fast and loose with plot details uh, of a work of literature there? I don't think so, because it's not itself the work of literature. You can still go read the story of Noah, and the, it's not like the director took his scissors and cut out the story so that you can't read it anymore, you know? Ah. Like, it, it's a separate thing. You would have to throw out Milton's Paradise Lost if you were going to do that, right? Um, on what basis? Well, on the basis um, of the fact that it's a piece of artwork, right, that... Um, Plays fast and loose with the scriptures. Mm. I mean, to some extent, that that's an overstatement. But it's his reading 
of the fall of man mm-hmm. and various Bible accounts make their way into that mm-hmm. retelling. But um, it's not the Bible. It's a work of literature. It's a work of art. Um, it doesn't come with the authority of God behind it. It is just the ideas of one man about the work of God in the world of man. Right. Right. So a responsive so reading. It's a responsive reading. It's artwork. It's it's his contribution to the ideas, the greater ideas, um, his his defense of God and his actions and things like that. Um, you can see the same thing when you read Shakespeare, who uh. borrowed so many of his plot lines from Hollinshed's Chronicles um, and from other works of literature, you know, and altered details and facts sometimes, combining more than one story to create his own response By the way, of art. We don't give uh, movie directors that tackle Shakespeare nearly the hard time for cutting and molding things to fit the demands of a movie that we give. Well, and other directors, do we? I mean, Shakespeare directors well, get a pass. Usually that's because they're actually using his text. They're not creating dialogue because Shakespeare was writing plays. The dialogue is already present. Well, I was just going to say Shakespeare is a great example of what we're talking about because it is a piece of literature. It was text written down. But every time it's acted out, uh, whoever's directing it is giving their own interpretation of the work. Like I've watched two different versions of Macbeth that both said different things about the story of Macbeth. The same goes for Henry V. Like it depends how the actor says the lines um, and where he places his emphasis. The same script. Yeah. And I mean, that's true of Shakespeare and that's true of the different um, movie versions of stories we're talking about now. Basically it's just a director stepping in and, and playing the script and putting his emphasis where he thinks it's important. And so why, I guess my question is, why do we not get up in arms when a director of a Shakespeare movie does that, but we would have had Peter Jackson on a rail had he played fast (laughs) and loose with the plot of The Lord of the Rings? I didn't have him on a rail, and he did. <laughs> yeah, I'm torn because I firmly believe everything that I'm saying, and The Hobbit is a disgrace to oh, all mankind. Yeah. Oh my word! Don't I guess I wasn't talking about The Hobbit, but the Hobbit. that reminds me of another question that I want to put to you guys, which is that I wonder if, when we're trying to evaluate movie versions of literature, we focus too much when we're giving the director a hard time or or judging whether it's a good movie or not. We focus too much on plot which after all is only one of the structural elements of a story. And it's maybe the easiest to spot differences in, right? Oh, the events didn't happen the same way in this movie as they did in the book. But maybe... I mean, the truth is... Sorry. No, no, go ahead. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, the truth is The Hobbit is bad because in itself, that movie was a bad piece of art. It just wasn't well executed. It, It, It doesn't have anything to do with his relationship to the text. I actually was going in the direction of the Lord of the Rings, which which is, for the most part, faithful to the general outlines of the plot and even gets a lot of the little details correct. And for that, Peter Jackson was lauded for, being, for taking the time Absolutely. to be faithful to the story. And yet, on some other counts, I think maybe even his desire to be faithful to the outlines of the story caused him to miss some of the thematic uh, elements and some of the elements of characterization that I thought were at least as important as the plot to the Lord of the Rings. And I think he missed them all together. I felt like that. Um, we've been watching again um, a 
mini-series version of Charles Dickens' Little Dorrit. Oh, yeah, with Claire Foy and yeah, Matthew McFadden Ma- from Matthew McFadden. 2010 or so. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a beautiful rendition, um, movie rendition of the story, but um, it puts words in Amy Dorrit's mouth that she never spoke in the text, uh-huh. basically adding to her character development um, in ways that Dickens did not. And as a result, changing, very subtly changing the thematic implications um, that were so bound up with her character uh, in the story. In other words, uh, giving a different reading. Giving, not just giving a different reading, because that wasn't there to begin with, telling a different story. When you change the elements of story that the, that the author originally included, you are telling another story. You're, you're assuming their characters and their place and things like that, but you are altering that author's story. And I think it's fine to do that if you admit to the fact that you're telling a different story. If you say, I'm not trying to tell that author's story, but if you're actually trying to tell the author's story and you change, you change it in some way, I, I don't think that's honest. What say you guys? I don't know what I think about that because you're talking about addition of things that Amy Dorrit didn't actually say in the book. And that's what you're taking issue with. But a lot of um, directors have to omit things that happened in the book and try to offer a representation of the book honestly, but they don't have six hours. They only have two. So I feel like that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the argument. And I feel like you're tossing out all of the movie versions of books because they necessarily have to make some changes. No, I don't think that that's the same thing at all because to obviously um, you can't get all of those pages into two hours. You can't render the thing word for word, but to um, especially a Charles Dickens novel. I mean, right. Yeah. But I'm not talking about omitting things. I'm not talking about having to choose the most significant portions of the text and represent them visually. I'm talking about mm-hmm. adding to the text, changing the okay, text so in some substantial ways so that it does, um, well, it, it changes the nuances of individual characters and as a result affects the thematic implications of what the author was trying to say in the first place and, and offers some different kinds of themes. Right. And I think maybe... Specifically with addition, not yeah. omission. Yeah, it would be specifically with addition, not with omission. Because, you know, when you're doing literary analysis of any sort, you have to do the same thing. You're not trying to reproduce the author's work um, in your in your essay about about the work. You're basically arguing a thematic concept and demonstrating with his own words from the text that this is so. If you think about a movie as um, representing a story that previously existed by doing essentially the same thing, rendering those particular scenes that were most consequential according to the, to the screenplay writer and the director's understanding of the story. That's one thing, but to change those things intentionally to tell a different story, it seems like you ought to, to mark that by, you know, giving it your own title. Ian, what, thank you. Right. Well, what I was going to say is I think, um, you might be right about that, and in a lot of cases, I assume you probably are, but I think you have to have that conversation back to front instead of front to back. In other words, the first thing that you have to do, just like in good reading, maybe we call it good watching, <laughs> the first thing you have to do is get all the way to the end of the director's thematic emphasis. 
And I think it's a mistake, no matter how gratifying it is, it is a mistake to watch a film based upon a novel and be comparing it point by point to the novel as you go along. You need to give yourself to the story since you're encountering a work of art, just like you are when you read a novel. And once you've gotten to the end and read the theme and understood what the director was saying, then go ahead and compare it to the novel. I mean, I've actually, I'm, I'm trying to come up with an example to, to give this punch. I have a great example. Go back to the Noah example again. Um, kind of what I'm trying to say is what the director was saying was actually defensible in a lot of ways, emphasized the weakness of mankind and the position that, that God holds in, in the world that he has created. And I didn't have a problem with this thematic emphasis at all. Even if and God's a giant rock person. To the, right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, honestly, even though he added a bunch of stuff that was pretty hokey and frankly didn't even work on screen from my perspective, <laughs> he was still saying something that didn't disagree necessarily with the text. So the additions didn't make me go, didn't make me flag him as a bad artist. Yeah, but what you did, when so you I, started talking about this, both of you said he wasn't trying to retell the story of Noah. His movie was a response to the story of Noah. It was not the story of Noah. It was not the Holy Scriptures. It was art. It's, you know, when you're... What, no, no, that's, no, no, no. What, what we said is he didn't say this is Scripture. He did say it was the story of Noah. It yeah, is the did. story of Noah. He's absolutely telling the story of Noah and the flood. I have another great example of this that I want to throw out for you guys and for our listeners too, which is the recent, can't remember the year, Leonardo DiCaprio version of um, The Great Gatsby. Oh, my word. Oh, man. Oh, what yeah. a great movie. Directed by <laughs> Baz so Luhrmann, the Australian impresario who played Fast and Loose <laughs> with some of the, <laughs> with some of the um, scenes and characters in that story. And I wondered how he was going to get away with it. And I wondered how he could justify some of the things he did. And then I saw an interview with him, which I wish everyone could watch because it revealed not a director saying F Scott Fitzgerald, he's dead. We'll do whatever we want with this story. We're going to tell our story and we're going to make Leo look really great. Instead, <laughs> this interview revealed him as an extremely thoughtful, very sensitive artist whose main goal was to get across Fitzgerald's theme as he saw it as faithfully as possible using the, the restrictions that cinema imposes. You have yeah. to tell a story a slightly different way in a movie than you do in a novel. You've got to arrange, even arrange plot details in a different order in a movie than you do in a novel. And as he frankly admitted in this wonderful interview, he said, let me show you something. And the interview cut away to this scene that was completely filmed and costumed and lit and everything, but they didn't include it in the movie. He said, here's a scene from the story. We couldn't find a place for it in the movie. And what we realized was that including this scene in order to be faithful to the book would have detracted from our version of the very same story. It would have it would have prevented us from telling what we feel was F. Scott, Scott Fitzgerald's point. And so we had to leave it out. And I'd, I'd never seen anything like that before. I haven't seen a lot of interviews with directors about movies made from classic books, but I got the sense that he was doing exactly what you guys have been talking about today. He was giving a reading of The Great Gatsby that was as faithful as he knew how to be to his understanding of Fitzgerald. And he was right. doing it in the, in the form of cinema, which required him to rearrange some details. 
Right. And I think that another awesome example of that exact phenomenon is to go back to Lord of the Rings and Peter Jackson for just a second. Um, the exclusion of Tom Bombadil, one of my very favorite characters from those books, um, from the films. Mm. He wasn't involved at all. It's a whole section of the opening uh, book in Tolkien's trilogy that just wasn't even there. Yeah. And people were really mad about it. And um, I don't, I, I haven't seen an interview with Jackson about this necessarily, but the word on the street was they just figured, look, this, this doesn't, this is an aside by Tolkien in the first place. When it comes to the narrative structure of the books, he makes a couple of thematic gestures in this section of the novel that allow us a lens for interpreting what comes afterwards. But where you do the thematic interpretation in a film is at the end, not the beginning. And all Tom Bombadil is going to do is distract everybody. Yeah. And so we hate to do it, but we're leaving him out. And, and I don't think anybody picked any bones with Peter Jackson's thematic interpretation of the Lord of the Rings. What Ian was saying makes me think of how uh, the Michael Fassbender Macbeth left out a lot of the scenes with the witches Oh, right. Um, and kind of tone down their character because to get across the powerful thematic point that he wanted to get across, um, which was true to the story of Macbeth, it would have been distracting to have the witches be um, the the flamboyant characters that Shakespeare made them be because in today's audience, it would come across as hokey. Um, give us a little background on that. You're talking about the, the Macbeth with Fassbender and Marion Cotillard that came out the year before last? Last yeah. Christmas, I think. Yeah, and what are these what are these thematic ideas that you're talking about? Give us specifics. Well, they do a great job of showing Macbeth as as just a man who uh, is flawed like all of us and um they just make him to be a way more human character and give us some hope at the end that a lot of Macbeths don't do. They just try to make him a a fierce kind of Machiavellian king. Right. But they, he was uh, dealing with these really delicate issues of human nature, and I mean, it just wouldn't have worked to put the witches in to that mix. So you think that leaving those out made it a better film? I think so, yeah. A better film. I mean, it's it's a film, not not the story. Right. Uh, over and over again. I, I think the witches work well in Shakespeare's version, but... Hmm. Over and over again, we're really talking about omissions, as opposed to additions, it seems like. I noticed that. Mm. And I think that that's different because when we are omitting things in order to get it up on the screen, we're offering an interpretation of the original work. But when we are putting words in the character's mouth, we're doing character development that the author didn't actually do and we're rewriting their story. Or when we're adding scenes that never occurred in the book, right? Um, we're telling a different story and it's still art. It's art. It's valid art. It might even be a really good movie, but it loses its resemblance very quickly to the original work of art, right? It's, it's, um, it's an offspring as opposed to, you know what I mean? Or, and you, if it goes, if it goes too far in that direction, you would even say it does violence to the original story. Well, that's the reason why I keep coming back to this. Don't call it by the same name. <laughs> if, if you're not trying, at least trying to represent that original piece faithfully, then call it something different. You know? If the, if the director of the Amy Dorrit BBC version that we love so much had tried to make Amy into a proto-feminist girl power strong woman, for example, that would have gotten us over the line into, wait a minute, you're playing fast and loose with this story. Well, and... Incidentally, the addition of dialogue that I was talking about did 
show Amy with more of a, what we would call today, a backbone in her response to her father's abuse and her sister and brother's um, attitudes and things like that. In the real text, she's much more, um, she's much quieter, much more um, retiring. retiring. She's more of a, a sacrificial lamb in many ways. Do you think then the movie version is a little anachronistic in that? Well, yes, to that I extent? do. I think it, I think it is. And that's not to say that it's not pleasing. I mean, I watch it and I Fair love enough. every minute of it. I've watched it more than once and have very much enjoyed it. It recalls many of the major thematic ideas in the story and in many ways is very faithful, but in so much as it adds things that weren't there, I think that it does some violence to the original storyline because the beautiful themes and ideas that that story was written to communicate were of a piece with Dickens' actual language, um, with the character development that he put in the story. Um, it, It is his work of art. And even though we say the movie... Um, even if it bears the name of the original, isn't the original story. It's somebody's view of it. Um, I think when we go to adding to the things that the author actually said, we move away from actually interpreting and into creating. Interesting. And if we're going to okay, create, so, go ahead and create. That's is... great. Do create. There's nothing wrong with creating, but call it by your own name. How far do we want to take that argument? Do all of the, do all of the lines of dialogue, for example, need to be taken directly from the pages of the story? In order for it to be a faithful retelling, do all of, say that again. Do all of the lines of dialogue in a film have to be taken directly from the pages of a story in order for it to be a faithful retelling in your mind? No, but I think that they have to be faithful to the presentation. Like, I don't think that there should be scenes added that didn't didn't actually occur or um, right, attitudes I'm, added I'm to, to characters out, that weren't present. I don't think we disagree necessarily on the on the broad scale issues of. It's a no-no to step in as a director and make a modern point using an old story and put words in the author's mouth. Nobody's disagreeing with you on that score. What I'm trying to say, though, is that really the ultimate end of the argument that you're making is this needs to be thematically faithful to the story. Because no director is capable of using all the lines of dialogue. He's not capable of including all of the scenes. And in some cases, maybe he even needs to conflate a couple of the scenes, thereby making a scene that didn't exist in the story. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess what I'm trying to say is on the one hand, yeah, I totally agree with the point that you're making, but I think saying the line for this is any inclusion of any details that weren't in the author's book first, you can cut, but you can't add. I think that's a little bit too hard a line to really get your point across. Is that fair? Um, I don't know. I, you know, <laughs> I could be convinced, <laughs> but I certainly wouldn't accept that from lines a, are your friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't actually accept that from a student who was writing t- um, for me on a subject, you know, if, if they were writing for me and offering me an interpretation of, um, say, the Red Badge of Courage, and they decided to just, for the sake of really emphasizing what they believe was the author's theme, they create some dialogue and put it in the mouth of one of the characters, I would not be okay with that. The grade would definitely plummet. But you're talking about completely different things. You're talking about literary analysis and criticism there, and we're talking about works of art that are, I, and the more we talk about this, the more I think that I really think that the movies just need to be judged in their own sphere as their own thing. And it's really cool if they do take up the author's themes um, and are able to portray that in a moving way. But it's a completely different work of art. It'd be as if it's like um, 
an artist or who what was his name who did the Dante renderings the the mm-hmm. drawings yes the um, woodcut Gustave Dore yeah, yeah Dore's um it, it's a it's a completely different work of art and you can't I don't know it's really hard to judge them one off the other interesting so I- maybe the most significant thing that we've said um this whole hour is a book and a movie are not the same thing. Yeah. So when you go to a movie, even if it bears the name of a book, you're not actually reading that book. Yes. It's a different thing altogether. To come back to what we said <laughs> yeah, at the absolutely. beginning, when a mother says to me, my son has not read the book for this class, but he has seen the movie, does that count? The answer is, the answer is a resounding no. A resounding no. Even if the movie's great, it still doesn't count. Right. And, and we can say it another way. We can say, are we teaching a class on this movie? Well, then no. (laughs) (laughs) If no, then no. I love it. Very quickly, let's do one more thing before we adjourn for this time. And that is, let's go around and give me either, in your opinion, the best movie version of a classic book or the worst movie version of a classic book. And let's just go right around the the table and uh, (laughs) give our listeners one little tidbit to think about in between episodes. Anybody want to go first? Either either the worst I do, I do. movie version or the best movie version of a classic book you've ever seen. Go ahead, Missy. I think the best movie version of a classic book I've ever seen is To Kill a Mockingbird. 1961, Gregory Ooh, Peck. That's the one. Nice. That's the one. And why? Why? Um, because it was so very faithful to the text. Now, we would expect, based on Missy's comments so far, that faithfulness to the text <laughs> would be the cardinal reading, virtue. A faithful rendering of the actual story <laughs> that you... we created. Call, did you call up this author's ghost and make them write the screenplay? Then you win. Well, she was present during all of the filming. We have pictures of her there with all of the actors and actresses. And, I love so it. So she was in on. But it. in all seriousness, that is pretty awesome. There's no. I, I think it's a five-zero vote on whether that's a great movie version. Oh of yeah, a book. screenplay written by Horton Foote. I think is the way you pronounce his name. F O T E. Foote. Yes. And he won awards for it. Yes. I mean, it was fabulous. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it. Do. Very good. But That's realize a- that it's not the same thing as reading. <laughs> it's book. almost the same thing, though. <laughs> right. Okay, somebody else. Who's next? Me, me. Let me go. Go, Megan. I love, I love the movie version of Anne of Green Gables, and it's not necessarily mm-hmm. because it's like perfect representation of what happens in the book, but I think that it perfectly captures Ellen Montgomery's tone. It is oh, actually it. word for word in terms of the dialogue. <laughs> but you have to let Megan say the reason well, she likes it is something helps. else. <laughs> but the reason I like it is because of the tone. I think it's so childlike and beautiful. I think they captured what Ella Montgomery was going for. Whether or not it's word for word is kind of beside the point to me. They did that tone. They captured that tone with things like lighting and costumes and music as much as anything. Didn't and they? casting. Yeah, and right. casting, right. Excellent. Yep. Love it. Love it. Ian, Emily, what do you guys think? Um, well, I don't know if I could pin down like a solid my favorite ever, but right now I'm super obsessed with um, Tom Hiddleston's portrayal of Prince Hal in The Hollow Crown. Yeah. Again, just that tone, mm-hmm. like capturing the tone of a very like dear friend. It's just, it warms my heart. Mm. Yeah, it's very compelling. You're talking about so, uh, Henry IV, one and two? And Henry V. And then yeah. Henry V also, yeah. Oh, excellent. Great example. Okay, Ian. What about you? I have a I have a uh, favorite vote and a least favorite vote. Nice. I'll try and make them a little <laughs> yeah. short. Um, my my favorite film adaptation, I think, probably would have to be The Lord of the Rings. I thought Peter Jackson did a brilliant job. Um, I hated The Hobbit, but even that 
comes nowhere near my least favorite. <laughs> my, my least favorite, and the, the only problem, the whole, the only hole here in, in this rant is that it definitely hasn't been around long enough to be called a classic book, but it was one of my favorites when I was growing up. It was called Aragon. It's a work of juvenile fantasy fiction. Christopher Paolini, um, I think, is the author, yes? Yeah, Christopher Paolini, a uh, kid from Colorado who was on the New York Times bestseller list by the time he was like 19. I think his first book was published between his 15th and 16th birthdays. And it was great. I, th- I mean, it was a great story. I really enjoyed reading it. And as the, it's a series of books. As the series went along, he matured a lot as an author. And by the time he was done, it was a... Well, it was epic, not just in scope, but just the success of it all. I mean, he he turned into a fully mature novelist right before our very eyes. And so then when the film rights were sold, obviously we were all rapidly excited. And the film version was the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> um, even without being compared to the novel in any way. It was the worst film I've ever seen. I mean, ham-fistedly written, ham-fistedly acted, ham-fistedly shot. It was terrible. And then, to be compared with one of my favorite books of all time, I mean, I just, I just wanted to cry. It was awful. There we well, go. Avoid that one like that. <laughs> what I'm coming away with is that we have a lot of really strong opinions about movies. Well, listen. Everybody knows that when you when you when you click play on bibliophiles, you're getting the Andrews. You're and gonna we... get a piece of our mind. <laughs> hey, I want to say I want to say one thing. I want to leave listeners with a thought. Here's here's the thought, and this is something that Emily and I talk about at home all the time. I think that we are currently living in a pretty interesting era when it comes to visual arts, specifically because the making of films is starting to look more like the writing of novels. Mm-hmm. With the advent of high, big-budget television, um, there are writers who would otherwise be novelists that are instead writing screenplays for long five- and six-season TV shows. Oh. And mm-hmm. what it turns into is you actually have 25, 26, 27 elapsed hours of time to build up these characters in the same way that you have that those that many pages in a novel to build up these characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I would say in no way should TV or movies ever replace books. Oh, not at all. But that we are living in a time where the art, it's not just, it's not just trash. It's not just sitting in front of the TV mindlessly. A lot of directors are engaging our minds in their writing. And the interesting thing about it is that it's a multifaceted way of encountering these stories, right? Yeah. When you, when you're reading a novel, you're encountering it with your own imagination and with the author's ability to evoke images in your mind, which is a unique and wonderful experience that, as Emily says, shouldn't be missed. Yes. However, when you sit down to watch a TV show, you're not only getting the benefit of the writer's mind, but you're also getting the benefit of the director's mind and his ability to frame shots and images in a way that communicates theme and every individual actor's mind as well. Yeah, it's a group project in the way that a character. novel isn't. Yeah. Right, which is one of the reasons we love the Hollow Crown so much, right? The latest effort by the by the British royalty of the screen and stage to put Shakespeare uh, on screen. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the combined efforts of a group of world class artists mm. at telling the same story. Interesting. So, a rarefied era, I think, a pretty interesting time to be alive when it comes to storytelling. I was thinking about, as you were talking, um, a mystery series that has been going on for a couple of years, two seasons now, called Grant Chester. That, um, oh, yeah, yeah, written from novels, 
that are relatively recent yeah, novels. Yeah, 2012. Um, which I've not yet read, but I have on order because as I've been watching these, the character development has com- been, it's just compelling character development. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the portrayal of law and grace side by side in those shows, it, Obviously, the author, whoever wrote them, was trying to you know, enter into the eternal conversation, the great conversation about this question of God and justice and man. And it's so compelling on the screen that I can't wait to get my hands on the book, because if he had, right. if that director had to cut and, um, you know, it had to in some way truncate the original in order to get it up there, what must the actual text contain. I can't wait. Unless, of course, the director is okay. completely doing violence unless, to Grandchester, well, and you're going to have to give the whole thing a double say, thumbs it, down. It could be an what Isaac Dennison issue, is your, right? What, what is going to happen to you? And, and in your mind, what's going to happen if you read that book and you realize that the director's point was grace and the book has nothing to do with it? Her head's going to explode. You know what That's I'm gonna, what's going to happen. No, no. Yeah, what I'm going to do gonna is say, oh, look, the, uh, the author wasn't really trying to say that, so this is not a faithful representation of the book. It's a spinoff, and I like the movie better than the book as a different thing than the book. Because remember, <laughs> okay. the movie is not the book. I, you know, if you really are that eager to just, you know, preserve the grammar, that's fine. I love it. Well, hopefully this discussion has given you all something to think about when you go to the movies. Hopefully it hasn't dampened your enthusiasm for movie versions of great books, because let us not be understood to say that we don't approve of that sort of thing, because we're all going to go watch a movie version yeah, of a great book at the movies. tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope this has been thought provoking. <laughs> it is all the time we have for today. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you to the Center for Lit crew for being here once again. And let me just say in closing, uh, let me encourage you to go ahead onto iTunes and like and vote for Bibliophiles as your favorite podcast. Give it a five-star rating because that uh, allows iTunes to spread the word and do other fun things. I don't know if there's cash and prizes involved. Emily, maybe you can fill us in on that. I didn't know this was the kind with cash and prizes. (laughs) It's okay. We'll talk about how iTunes works later. If you have a chance to rate us on iTunes, please go ahead and do it. We'll adjourn for this time and see you again on another edition of Bibliophiles. But... Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.